Well, do you think about marriage, yours or maybe someone else's? Do you think about marriage as having anything to do with the Bible? Do you think about marriage as having anything to do with the Bible? Is your opinion of marriage, or even you might think a little bit further back, uh, is your opinion of a woman or a man, womanhood, manhood, marriagehood, is your view or analysis of marriage rooted biblically? Or is it just something that is cool or something that's fine? Marriage is fine. Your view of marriage is fine. Someone else's marriage is fine. Maybe it's good. Maybe you have a good marriage. Maybe those people have a bad marriage. And, you know, that's what makes them unique or different. But it's what people do. You know, it's a tax break at the end of the year. But is your view of marriage, your opinion of marriage, socially informed? Or is it biblically informed? Is it is it informed by how uh, our modern times would define marriage, or is it biblically formed? Maybe a better question. If, if you're a Christian here, and, and someone were to ask you a description of marriage, would, would it change? Would your definition of marriage towards someone change if you knew that they were a Christian or not a Christian? Would you talk to someone who's not a believer and say, well, well here's what marriage is, according to believers, or to just kind of be the same for everyone. Uh, one pastor at a pastor's conference that I went to, uh, it was one of those, he was on a panel, it was just kind of getting to know you, he was a very seasoned pastor. Uh, he was asked about his wife, you know, he's always on stage, but tell us about your wife, tell us about your marriage. Describe your marriage, the person said, and this person quoted from Shakespeare. <laughs> How cool is that guy? He quoted from Shakespeare, Merchant of Venice, where it says, for she is wise, if I'm allowed to judge her. She's fair, if my eyes are true. She's true, as she has proved herself, and therefore, like herself, wise, fair, and true, shall be placed in my constant soul. Beautiful, isn't it? Lovely. Some of you are going, what? This person, in quoting Shakespeare, he quite notably expressed his admiration of his wife. She was wise fair and true. Women, wouldn't you love to be described as that in front of a lot of people? Uh, she's his one flesh. She's his harmonized lover. He can't not lovingly consider her all day long. Maybe, maybe that's you. Praise God. Maybe your marriage is more like the main character from the musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Have you seen that? Where this bustly fellow from the backwoods, a mountain man, arrives into town and he meets who he later will marry as his wife. And after he does this, he says to his brothers, after seeing the quality of her cooking, or maybe the ability of her to do chores on time, that's why he chose her. That's why he loved her. He married her because he needs her to help him due to how difficult it is to live in the backwoods. Someone's got to keep the home in the winter. Someone's got to make babies, he says. Maybe that's more of you than you'd like for other people to admit. Is that your view of marriage? Is it rooted anywhere or is that just how you are today? Maybe your view of marriage is what's so common today. Why are you even married? Well, we just love each other. Why wouldn't we get married? We love each other. Why wouldn't they get married? Why wouldn't anyone get married? Why can't I marry that? We love each other, whatever that means. 
It's always fun to talk to teenagers about what love means because there's just a lot of anxiety and a lot of adjectives and there's not a lot of verbs or a lot of nouns. There's just a lot of feelings. And is that what's informing your view of marriage? Now, Scripture this morning is the final recounting of Genesis' beginning. The beginning of the beginning. This is kind of the final chapter and then everything will, will be on a new trajectory going forward. The, the universe's beginning, our beginning, ends here majestically with the creation of a woman. It's awesome and nearly unbelievable. You all would not write a book like this, but God will continue to be generous. He'll continue to be provisional. It is him who continues to act the way he desires, and he, and he did this way in the beginning. This too, like last week, is a, is a zoomed-in view. It's like if chapter one of Genesis, like I've said before, if you're new, chapter one of Genesis is like a telescope wandering about the glory of God, and then chapter 2 is like a zoomed-in microscope where it, where it almost slows down. It, it starts to slow everything down. And I remember the creation days uh, from the first chapter. Days 1 through 3 were categorically forming things out of chaos. There was a lot of chaos, and then there was a lot of forming. And then days 4 through 6 were, were then taking those formations. God took those formations, and then he started filling things inside on those days. And, and in verses 4 through 17 of the second chapter is a zoomed-in picture of what God has made in order to fill his creation. He made a special person from the dust, and then he placed this special person in a special place. And in today's passage, it's continuing in that, where, it'll show, where God will show that he's actually forming a helper from the special man and then place them in a special relationship. So there's still some forming, there's still some filling, and here it's beautifully on display. Now, whatever you think about marriage, I want to encourage you and plead with you to possibly place aside what you have in your mind and, and allow your view of marriage to be transformed by the Bible's teaching on this special relationship, this womanhood and manhood. Today's text will give you a foundation. It's not the entire doctrine. We have that, the rest of Scripture for that, but it is a foundation to that doctrine, the doctrine of marriage. Now, if you look around today, you recognize that life is incredibly chaotic, but also within marriage, within gender, uh, within whatever circumstances God has you, it feels chaotic, but I, I want you to briefly take yourself back to the garden where things were not sin-stricken, where things were actually good. There was no suffering here, and God in Moses recounts the divine delivery of a helper for Adam, and they, became, they become one flesh. It's the deep well from which all biblical teaching on the covenant of marriage is drawn, and it tells us not only about marriage. So there's some of you who are like, not married, don't care, was married, that was long ago, did I pick the wrong Sunday to come? No, it very much forms an understanding of who women you are, who men you are. So it's exceptional for all of us. Now, here too, you see God's initiative being the root of everything. I was encouraged by a friend who, he said, I came to life at the age of 45 when he, he was encouraged by a pastor to read through the Bible with the same question, who here is in charge? And here it's, a, it's another answer to that, God being in charge. God is the initiator of everything here. Look at, look at how God initiated 
just in scanning some of these verses, look at the initiated verbs. Verse 18, the Lord God said. He's doing something. Verse 19, the Lord God formed. He's doing something. Verse 21, the Lord God caused. He's acting. And then in verse 22, the Lord God made. And in each of these cases, the Lord God, the creator, the covenant-making God takes the initiative to shape man. And then woman in a special relationship. Moses' words here are primary and vital for us to understand the world around us. So let's go back to the garden. I want you to see uh, I want you to see three main things. First, I want you to see uh, the immediate need that the special man has. I want you to see, sorry, I don't have an outline on the bulletin that you've been provided. You'll just have to listen. But I want you to first understand man's need here in the garden. You see this in verses 18 through 20. Now, before this text, there were six joyful refrains. And the Lord God saw, and it was good. The Lord God saw, and it was good. It was good, it was good, it was good. Six times. And then he was satisfied with perfection by a seventh refrain, and it was very good. Now, a normal reader would just read this and go, man, this book is already starting off awesome, and then it is abrupt here in verse 18. We're not prepared for this, for all of a sudden, it's talking about how it's not good. All of a sudden, it was not good. Moses says that God said, it is not good, verse 18, that the man should be alone. And this is startling. One Hebrew scholar talks about this work and saying this not good, this language of not good, this is very strong language. You know, you might passively say, hey, how was your day? Not good. And really what you mean, how was your day? Tragic, awful, desperate, someone help. That's the kind of language here. This is indicating an absence. And it's indicating a deficiency, even within God's good creation. Not good is actually pretty bad for Adam. So notice that not good wasn't from Adam, though. It wasn't Adam evaluating. He wasn't looking around and going, man, it was really great. Look at all these trees. Oh, look at the four rivers that came from one. I'm not really sure how that happens. But uh, it's not very good. This is not Adam's recollection on what God has done for him or placed him in. This is actually God's understanding. God's determination here is seeing that it's not good for Adam to be alone. God didn't consult Adam. There's no indication that Adam had any idea that he was alone. He may not have even known at the time that it was not good, but God's sovereign, independent evaluation sees something, and then we see here that God has a resolve. So within understanding that, that there is a need of man, I want you to, almost as a subpoint, see that there is still resolve here from God. God's sovereign, independent resolve was clear. I will make him a helper fit for him. That's what God saw when he saw it wasn't good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper fit for him. And that phrase, that, that captures women's role and dignity simultaneously. A woman is a helper and a suitable helper. Now, when you hear helper, I bet your mind will wander to different things. What does it mean to be a helper? That, that feels a little bit derogatory. Why, why am I being asked to help? Why, what's my role? Why can't I be the, the lead here? Why do I have to help? One of my best friends, a uh, pastor in Virginia, he's got four girls under the age of 10, and uh, he, he says, man, you got to have girls because when they're sweet and little, they do anything their dad wants. Uh, he often is ridiculed by his own wife when she says, hey, before we go to bed, can you clean the kitchen? And he's like, I'd love to. That's no problem. And then he'll call Harper. He'll call Emerson. And he'll, hey, let's, let's clean the kitchen with dad. And they're like, yes, that's so great. One time he sent us a video with uh, two, of our, two of my friends. He sent us a video where he was on the couch and he said, hey, Harper, can you get me a blanket? Yes. 
Hey, Emerson, can you hand me the remote? Yes. Hey, uh, hey, Iris, can you, go, can you go get coffee from mom? Yes, I would love to. He's like, guys, you got to get yourself a helper. <laughs> now, is that the biblical view of what a helper is? Is it just like a, like a little fairy around the house who will help you get coffee or, you know, help you straighten up or help maybe tie your tie if you don't know how to before dinner so you're not embarrassing? Is that, is that the biblical view of a helper? No. It's not. When you think of helper, you may think of something diminishing, but that is, that is not the biblical word for helper. And we know that not only because of what this word means, sometimes words do have meaning, and we can just understand that from this. It doesn't mean servant here. Helper doesn't mean that. Helper, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, is described as what God does. God acts as a helper to his people. God is the helper of Israel. We see in Exodus 18, Deuteronomy 33, 1 Samuel 7. God's the helper when he gives aid to Israel. When they have enemies, they call out to him and he shows up. In Psalm 20, Psalm 121, Psalm 124, as their helper, Moses calls God his helper after he is delivered from Pharaoh's grip. Now, think of this. Eve here, this is the woman here, Eve, should be named later. Eve is a portrait of God coming to aid in rescue men. That's what a helper is. Remember that, ladies, as you work, as you labor for the glory of the Lord, you're a picture of God's aid to your husband. You're, you're a glimmer in our mind. You're a glimmer, maybe a bright light in a lot of ways. You're a bright light of help. So man's helper is no weak sister. The function of the helper here is complementary to the man's function. A helper, it says here, fit for him, which literally means a helper according to man's opposite. God provides a helper which is like but also unlike the man that she would be standing across from, if you imagine it. The woman is a, she's a parallel complement. She shares his nature. And we see in uh, Chapter 1, verse 27, which is like a broad overview of what's happening here, but here, a zoomed-in picture, but in the broad overview, male and female, it says we're created, both of them in the image of God, so they are, are, they are like one another in their nature, but they are so complementary in how they are bringing glory to the Lord. But as his complement, it is the woman here who would supply a different function. She, she truly brings something that he does not have. Complementarity is a theme that you'll see played out through the rest of Scripture, in particular when it's talking about a man and woman's relationship with in marriage. There's nature, who a woman is, who a man is, and then there's also function of what a woman is called to do and what a man is called to do. And these are not contradictory. So there's a woman and a man here in this relationship, and they've got different roles. They are equal, totally. Why do we see that? We'll see that here in a second. But Paul here, later on in the, in the New Testament, Paul would stress that this is, a very, this is very significant to understand husbands and wives and in their relationship. When he points this out in 1 Timothy 2, he says Adam was formed first, then Eve. It doesn't say that she was formed less, but also she was formed. It also pointed out not only in Genesis 2 or in 1 Timothy, but also in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 through 9, that woman was made for man to help him. For a help to him, it says, to be a suitable helper for him. So having stature right there, having a function right there. It's also stressed later, later on in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 11 that Eve 
is the crown and glory of Adam. Someone may ask you, men, about yourselves. Uh, They may basically say, give me your resume, or what have you done, or what makes you you? In a a biblical marriage, it, it ought to be almost you displaying the crown that God has given you in the person uh, or your wife in that person. She is the glory of Adam, and that man stands in need of her. We see this scripturally that Adam needs her. With the woman, it's now possible for man to do what he could never do on his own. Something very good would be brought to him, but how does this happen? We see this in the passage there in verses 19 through 20. God initiated an awareness plan. He, he here made Adam aware of his lacking. God brought all the creatures to Adam, and Adam sized all these creatures up and named all these creatures. Now, this is a daunting, meticulous task. Meticulous task. It's, a, it's an intense process, but, but take notice of something here. When Adam is being brought all the creatures of the earth and he's naming them, uh, previously notice that it was God who had been the namer of creation. It was God who said, this is day. It was God who said, this is night. It was God who said, this is earth. It was God who formed man out of the dust. But those who name things actually own them. You know, why is the Battle of Waterloo named the Battle of Waterloo? Because the winner chose to name it that. It wasn't even near Waterloo. Why why do people come into this area and name something what they want? Because they were victorious over it. And in this case, God gives Adam this kingly dominion where he is now performing sovereign, a sovereign naming function. So think hard on this, though. This isn't just a random, easy process, naming animals. Uh, it demands awareness and true understanding of these animals. It's not a whimsical process of reviewing things and just be like, well, okay, black stripe, white stripe, hooves, zebra. Or, oh, man, that's a, that's a big mouth, pelican. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. It wasn't just that easy. There's this classic 1800s German Protestant commentary that helpfully points out that, that Adam doesn't name merely by outward types, but also as a deep and direct insight into the nature of these animals. He, he truly is sizing them up. He's evaluating them, seeking to understand them, seeking to know them. He, he names them, that's his role, but through this, he actually recognizes that there's no one like him. And all of a sudden, he feels very alone. There's a far deeper thing happening than just reflection and sorting things and piling them up over here. Verse 20 shows that Adam named everything. He studied everything, and he found nothing like him. He's alone. Animals had each other. They had their own kind. And the darkness that demands filling shows itself here to be alone. Loneliness is a desperate and haunting danger to man's soul. The United Kingdom in 2018 created a ministry of loneliness because it became plaguing the country where people became more alone and it was slowly dismembering the very foundation of what it meant to be in the United Kingdom. In Japan today, there are more than half a million people who have not left their house in six months. They haven't seen anyone. They don't know anyone. They're alone. I would imagine sometimes if you've ever been, if you've ever been uh, in a supermarket, imagine yourself being young again, uh, where you might be in a supermarket or in the mall or something, and you're around a lot of people, and you're in big stores, but all of a sudden, you have no idea where mom is. And even though you're around a bunch of stuff, 
You know, Adam was around dinosaurs. Who's lonely there? But here he realized who I'm, who I'm supposed to be. I'm alone. So we, we see that Adam is made aware here. There's a, there's a desperate need going on. It's, it's not just that a friendship had to be formed here, but there was no one like him. And so the second thing, second major thing I want you to see here is how God made the woman. So he, he made Adam to be aware of his loneliness, but then here he resolves to make a woman. God created the woman, and Adam, we would imagine, emotionally was ready. Look at verses 21 and 22. This describes the Lord's work. I'll read verse 21 here. It says, And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. A deep and heavy sleep. God placed Adam in a deep and heavy sleep. Now, scripturally, a deep and heavy sleep like Adam is going through is, a, is actually a pattern in Scripture. Whenever God puts someone to sleep like this, something big is about to happen. You can see that playing itself out. Before God gave the world the Abrahamic covenant, he put Abraham to sleep. Before Jonah was directed towards the place where he would serve the Lord, he went to sleep. Before Jesus did something miraculous, he was asleep. Now, here we see that Adam was placed to sleep, and there was a rib taken from him. Or maybe your, your Bible says part of his side was taken from him. And this rib being removed is not, it's not symbolic. There's nothing in the language that would make this appear symbolic. It's not like a metaphor like some people think, but it was actual. A rib was removed from this man. And this is not only practically, but also there is deep theological reasons for this. Whether the rib means side or whether it means rib, like you might order off of a menu, the specific rib is not necessarily open to debate. And how many of us, when we may have heard a sermon like this preached about this, we, the guys go, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. We, it was just Adam's rib that was taken from him. It was miraculous, like everything else was taken from or everything else that was formed within creation. But the implications here are several and profound. Adam was not created out, or Adam was created out of nothing. Or, nope, that's theologically heretical. Uh, Adam was created out of the dust. <laughs> Man, you just saw a lot of panic in my mind there. Adam was not created out of nothing. Adam was created out of dust. And in the same way, Eve was also created not out of nothing, but she was created out of man's side. Look at verse 22 there. It gives us this. And the Lord God fashioned the rib, which he had taken from the man, into a woman, and he brought her to the man. He created out of Adam. What he created out of Adam is simply the basis for how you and I can look at man and woman in an equal nature. The Puritan Matthew Henry sweetly portrays it, that Eve was not made out of his head to top him, not made out of his feet to be trampled on by him. She was not made out of, or she was made out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by and near his heart to be his treasure. Now, the creation of the woman from the man's side is not only marvelous and spectacular, and also uh, it, gives us, it gives us an understanding of, of the nearness and closeness that that a wife is to a husband. But there's also, there's also beautiful Christological application of woman being, create, being created by man's sleeping. Uh, Andrew Bonar, in his Genesis commentary, says that the early church fathers, so these were people in the hundreds and two hundreds after Christ went to heaven, the early church 
fathers pointed to woman's creation during Adam's sleep and compared it to the death of Christ and the redemption of the church. Uh, Andrew says, there must be sleep in the first Adam before God can make him a spouse. There must be death in the second Adam before God can make him a chosen bride. Or put another way, the groom was laid to rest. Think about this. Try to understand this with gospel lenses. The, woman, or the man was laid to rest, wounded from the side, causing the bride to then have life. Or in the scripture's portrayal of the gospel, it was Christ who was put to death, where his side was speared to prove that he was very dead, and by that giving new life to his bride. You see, even here, the, the rooting of, of woman's equality with man gives us already a beautiful picture that will become brighter and brighter and brighter as the scriptures go on. This passage clearly focuses on the basic need, the basic need of companionship fulfilled by the woman to the man. Now, this is important to understand here. We're still in the second, second point here. It is, it is important to understand that in the garden, when things were good, when there was man and there was woman, why were they brought together? They were brought together because of companionship. They were brought together so that they would enjoy one another, so that they would know one another. They were not first brought together for procreation, as some religions or even some uh, sections of our own Christianity would have it. They, they weren't brought together in order to produce. Now, there is a production that will happen that is called a blessing after that, but, but man was alone, and here God made him a woman so that they could be so that they could have companionship. Companionship, not, pro, not procreation, is the divine motive for marriage here in Genesis 2. Getting married simply for procreation, getting married simply for procreation is a false view of biblical marriage. That's an ordinance of work, not rest. God doesn't want you to work more in your marriage. He wants you to enjoy one another in your marriage. The Christian view of getting married is receiving and giving the blessing of companionship, of rest. This idea of worship and rest here. Now, another thing I want you to see here just within the garden, maybe, maybe it's important to see what's there, you know, a man and a woman and happiness and joy and companionship. Also, it's helpful to see what's not there. Briefly, I want to speak to those of you who wish more than nothing else that you would have children. The infertile. I want you to notice what's not in this text. There's no children here. Yet there's still joy and companionship there. Derek Kidner, commentator on this passage, says, The woman is presented wholly as man's partner and counterpart. Nothing yet is said of her childbearing. She is valued for herself. She is, she is fully, she is fully a godly woman in the garden. Now, we'll see not far long down the road, there will be children that will come from that. It's good for all of us to pray for that or pray for others. But women, when you struggle or when you are tempted and the world will tell you that you are less because you have produced less than others, you need to know that that is also a false view of womanhood. Woman was fully woman here. Part of why Moses is writing this book for these people is to give them confidence that they are who they are and God is doing with them what he wants to do with them. The Christian you of marriage is for companionship. Fertility does not make a woman valuable to her husband in and of itself. She in, in and of herself is valuable to her husband 
regardless of whatever procreative blessings the Lord showers on her family. So my sister, you are no less family. Now, another thing, so I spoke to people who are infertile. I want to speak to the rest of you too. You can be dangerously unhelpful and unkind if you speak unbiblically about people. So for example, I will very often, maybe once a quarter, maybe once every other month, someone who I don't know will say, hey, so uh, you got any family? And I know what's coming, and there is nothing more than I love than to slowly put people in their place. So when they say, hey, do you, do you have a family? I just go, yeah. And they're like, oh, great, what are their ages? And I go, oh, well, my dad's 66, my mom's 64, my wife's 30, my sister's 37. They've got abundance of nieces and nephews. And, it, and, they'll, and they'll say, oh, I mean, like, I mean, like, do you have kids? Oh, I thought you meant, am I an alien? Because you just asked, did I come from nowhere? Have I produced things from nowhere? And they're like, oh, this is uncomfortable for me. And I'm like, oh, is it uncomfortable for you right now? Because what you just said about me is an unbiblical view of what a man is. And what you just said about my wife, now I'm fired up. You just said that my wife is less. Now, they didn't, they didn't mean that, right? They just, hey, man, I'm just trying to strike up conversation here while I'm, you know, fixing the electrical work that you broke in your house. And I'm just saying, no, 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 hold on a second. So, friends, let's be careful. Women, be very careful in understanding who you are under God's eyes. You're a woman. And, and Christians, be very careful in how you talk about family, how you talk about people, how you talk about daughters and sons and friends, and family. No, diatribe over. There is a final clause here in the text, uh, or in this, in this verse, which is the last line of verse 22, and this completes the Lord's work here, and I love this. It says that he brought her to the man. One theologian points out the obvious. God himself, like a father of the bride, leads the woman to the man. And, and Adam saw the woman as magnificent. She was the prototype of all women uh, from the well of creation. And in the garden, she was perfect. She was perfect in body. She was perfect in soul. She was sinless. And as she stood by the arms, so to speak, of her father, God, being brought to Adam, she was there for Adam to see. And what did, what did Adam do here? What was his response? A shout of euphoria. Look at verse 23 there in the text. Verse 23, and the man said, this one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, because this one was taken out of man. Adam's ecstatic cries are the first human words quoted in the Bible. <laughs> the first words that are quoted by a man in the Bible are praising what God has given him in a woman. It bears repeating, man's first words recorded to us were about God's graceful gift of human companionship. What Adam saw this day was nearly a mere image of himself, and with some very agreeable differences. Adam had found his companion, his, his longed-for love, and he was alone no longer. And because God has sharpened Adam's naming powers, the man impulsively declares, she shall be called woman. Woman here is Isha. Uh, because she was taken out of man, man here is Ish. So he's saying, she's like me. She's woman, but she's for me. 
The sound play celebrates this relationship. Adam is restating his own name embedded into hers. Adam anticipated this deepest intimacy. Now, now look at how God made the woman. Made him from the man. Look at why God made the woman. God made the woman for, for man's joy and companionship. Adam's joyous shout echoes down to this present day, proclaiming the joy and intimacy of a man being given to a woman suitable for loving relationship. And so what follows is obvious. There's a, there's a third major thing that I want you to see from this text. I want you to see here that, that God here ordains a marriage. We see God's ordination of marriage in the final two verses of this chapter. Here in the text, Adam's voice dwindles. He shouts for joy, and then he kind of quietly goes away. And it's the voice here of Moses that concludes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, Moses' words were, uh, for us, we need to see them as divine revelation. And Jesus himself would, would quote to them, uh, would quote these very words whenever he would talk about marriage later in the New Testament. These words became the deep well for the Bible's teaching on marriage and family. You and I might look at this text and be like, oh, why did I invite my friend to Sunday this day when we're talking about this archaic view of marriage. And friends, again, remind ourselves, what does God want us to have through this? He wants us to have confidence in what he says is good. It was good for a man to leave his family and hold fast to his wife. It is good to have this understanding that many people will call old school, archaic, backwoods. These, these are the words of God. These are the words of God on their own, but then it would be the Son of God who would take these words and hold them up as the proper view of marriage and on the family. Now, let's look at them, zoom in a little bit. Look at the word leave. What's this mean? Well, neither before or after Moses was it ever custom for a man to leave his family when he took a wife. It was normal for a man to get a wife and bring him to, you know, we'll, we'll just say the family farm. Or maybe you've been in Kentucky or Pennsylvania, you've gone to like an Amish farm where they, they just keep adding on to the back of the house. There's lots of generations happening there. It, it was normal for men not to, to leave the farm, if you will, and go set up shop somewhere else. So we have to look at it, not, not culturally here, but we have to understand the, the theology of what it means to leave his mother and father and take his wife. Uh, the custom was for man to marry and remain, uh, like we see this in Jacob. Jacob's sons did this repeatedly. Uh, but, but custom did call for the wife to join the family of her husband. This was done, and this is also done today. Uh, we see this kind of practically play out when a woman will take the name of her husband. One of the most terrifying things. Uh, no, I'm not going to say it. Bad example. All right, so uh, we see this happening today. <laughs> oh, it would have been bad. Uh, but we should see how this declaration was intended. After all, Adam and Eve didn't even have parents. So, so how could they be given instruction and leave the mother and father and take their own? Surely they'd be looking around and going, remember how you made us. All right, so let's look at this. It must be understood and followed reasonably as a prescription for the loyalty and intimacy that a man must give his wife. He must leave his family. She must leave hers. The union with his wife is so profound that he leaves his family even though he might re remain around his family. But his first obligation, his supreme loyalty is exclusively to his wife. And so many marriages today fail, precisely at this point. Husbands and wives fail to leave where they were 
and to make or prefer where they are now. When past loyalties are held as primary and a new and separate covenant isn't established, frankly, the creation norm spirals out of control. So guys, it is fine to be a mama's boy, but it is is good to grow up and be a man. Uh, Wives, it is great to have a great relationship with your parents. Pray for more of that. A lot of people don't have them. But you got, you got to leave and cleave in this point because it's a distorted view of when things were good. Now, the second word here, cleave, or maybe your passage has hold fast. Uh, the following requirement here is to not only leave, but also to hold fast or to cleave. Uh, this, is a, this is to hold fast to his wife. Uh, much has been made uh, too tame uh, by our own translations in this. What it, what it actually literally means is to leave his family and stick to his wife. The, the term cleave or stick here indicates that marriage is to be viewed as a new covenant. Leaving and cleaving involves a public declaration in the sight of God. Scripturally, marriage is not a private matter. It involves a declaration of intention and a reordering of a relationship. It's something new. When, it, when we talk about one flesh, we're meaning it's a, it's a new thing entirely. The idea of purely, I'll just rant on this, the idea of like purely private marriages in recent is an anomaly, and it is a spawn of individualism and the demise of community. Or you see people who just want to sleep together, and they'll say very proudly, well, we've made our covenant with God. And it's like, I wonder if you're as private with each other and how you love them as you just were with the rest of us that we are called to live in loving community with. Christian marriages call for a public covenant before God. It, is, it has always been seen as an extension, not a part of, but as an extension of the church in celebration. This is why when I do weddings, I don't say as a minister you know, signed on by the state of Oklahoma. I don't care about the state of Oklahoma when we're doing a marriage. I'm a minister of the gospel of Christ right there. What's happening here is a celebration of the wedding that is being talked about from the scriptures. So here we have where marriage is public, and it's important that we understand and hold fast before us that what is taught about man and woman in marriage here was given at and rooted in the very act of creation. Your view, your definition of marriage, your theology of what a marriage is, if it is not rooted in the creation account, it is not a Christian definition. The the creation of Eve and the command to leave and cleave occurred on the sixth day as the culmination of the creation process. This is radically primary to creation and civilization. And in a couple of gospels later on, Genesis is precisely where Jesus is going to explain the foundation of boundaries within marriage, boundaries outside of marriage, and also boundaries in society. Likewise, Paul also made it foundational to marriage when he says, therefore, man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Wonder where he got that from. And they shall become one flesh. Wonder where they got that from. This mystery Here's the, here's the difference. Paul, Paul takes it and almost plugs Christmas lights into it to make it look beautiful. This mystery, he says, is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. You may think, oh, we'll just go off and we'll get married and no one needs to know. That is not what is happening with Christ and his bride. It, was a, it is a structural, foundation-shaking thing when Christ came for his bride. The one flesh here expresses the deepest intimacy where everything is shared. And this is so between Christ and his church. 
as it should be with man and woman. It is, it is the one time, <laughs> it is the, is it, for, for those of you who are married, it is the one place where you, where you can emotionally, physically connect with your wife and say, this is me. And I want to glorify God more. And he's given me you. And they can respond back, this is me. This is my heart. This is, this is my soul. This is me. And help me. Yeah, help me to me so I can glorify the Lord. Within Christ's relationship to his church, everything here is shared. This makes, this makes the quality of our marriages and the pursuit of the quality of our marriages so important. The abuse marriage is. To abuse marriage, sorry, to abuse marriage is to actually abuse Christ in the church. We may think something just fell apart, or they just didn't connect, or it got old, or someone ran away. That is an abuse at the image of Christ's glory. This is why we see today so many churches around us who are downplaying the, or they're delineating the biblical view of marriage. Uh, they're actually creating new definitions of what marriage is. We recognize that for 2,000 years, marriage has been this, but we have, we have read books and now we think marriage is all these kinds of things. It is, it, is hard, uh, it is hard to not be surprised when those churches very quickly lose the gospel altogether. Because if marriage meant this, and Paul says that it is a, it is a showcase of the display that, that Christ has for his church, if you start changing the, the nouns and the definitions there of what it means, of course, you're going to lose the gospel altogether. It's the clearest picture of what the gospel is. The, a marriage in the garden we see at the beginning of the scriptures. And then what do we find at the very end? A marriage in the end, where a groom has his bride. Now you look at this, in conclusion, you look at this, and you say, man, it looks pretty great. <laughs> man, it looks pretty bad around here, though, doesn't it? How did we get here? How did we get to where we are today, where, where marriages or relationships between a husband and a wife seems to have such awful pressure against it, where people are coming in Rather than denying themselves, they are just trying to consume, or they're going after each other for their own, own selfish pursuit, or of course, the, the unbelievable, bizarre phenomenon today that is, that is just being forced on people in a bizarre way of, of things like same-sex marriages or transsexual marriages, all those other things, that those are unbiblical as well as not biblical. They are a delusion or a contradiction in terms on what the Bible has in the very beginning. Now, Christian, have confidence. Our view of marriage, or hopefully our view of marriage, is not just something that the church made up. It's not just something that is old school or from the 50s. No, it's something that is rooted in Genesis 2. Why should Christians care? Why shouldn't we just be laissez-faire about this? To the true Christian, every assault on the ordinance of marriage, as it was originally established on by God is an attack on the uniqueness of marriage and desire of God. Every assault, every variation on Scripture's marital definition is, in fact, an assault on the God of those Scriptures that defined it. The ideas of things like open marriages, living together, same-sex marriages, unfaithful marriages, those are all clumped together when we have a definition of marriage. All those things cannot coexist in the heart of the Christian. Those things can't be certified or celebrated by a church when we hope to see a marriage prosper at the same time. So how did we get here? Well, we see at the very beginning when everything was good, there was temptation. And from there, man, what is called, fell into sin. But they didn't just fall into sin. We'll see this in later weeks, and you probably know it, and you can read it for yourself. We didn't just, mankind didn't just fall into sin. Adam and Eve didn't just fall into sin, but, 
but there was like an earthquake that extended far beyond them where we all are inheriting their sin as well as sinning ourselves. And so we look at the world around us and we ought to just go, of course it is the way it is because we're involved. I'm involved. You and I are involved. We're sinful people. But what is clear in the scriptures, and even though it is very bad, there is hope that is promised from the very beginning that even though it was man who sinned against the holy God, it was God who was gracious enough, gracious enough and faithful to his own people to send his own son in such a way for the, for the people who would be seen and described as whores in the Old Testament. It is, it is those people who would be brought to the groom who was waiting them, and he would clean them up. So friends, let us remind ourselves when we look at what it is to be a woman and a man, there is great hope for how we can be remade to the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us, sometimes drastically. We pray that you would be tender to us as we seek to understand you more and better. Lord, teach us and guide us about what it means to be a woman for your glory, to be a man for your glory, so that you would be exalted over all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.